Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Good evening and welcome. Uh, and let's go ahead and get started. Uh, I am Paula England. I'm the Dean of Social Science here at NYU Abu Dhabi. Um, and it's really my great pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight. Uh, our speaker is Leonid Pesahin, Leo to us, uh, who is our colleague and associate professor in political science. He's been here for a number of years. And um, he's going to talk about a question today that his research deals with. And I guess the way I would put it in my own words is when countries or groups within countries, or sometimes it's in dispute what the country is, what is a country, um, are fighting violently for years with many people losing property, violated in various ways, or killed, many people having lost family members and loved ones. How does it affect the political and social behavior of the next generation of the groups that were in conflict? Leo's writing a book about this. It's uh, titled with a co-author, uh, Children of Violence, Victims in the Shadow of Conflict. And this book, uh, in perhaps some of its talk tonight, will draw on evidence from the Cambodian genocide, the Guatemalan civil wars, and the Soviet uh, deportation of Crimean Tatars. Now, this topic is something that Leo has scholarly expertise on. That's why we invited him tonight. But it's also a little bit personal for him. Um, Leo was born in what, at the time, was Soviet Ukraine. And his interest in these topics um, of identities, identities and of legacies of violence comes in part from Ukraine's history and its present struggles. So please welcome Leo. Well, uh, thank you very much, Paula, for the kind uh, introduction. And thank you for encouraging me to present. Thanks also to the Institute for uh, inviting, inviting me. Thank you to all of you, first and foremost, for making the time. I know that it's a busy time in the semester when you guys have midterms and things like that. So uh, um, it's exciting to have this opportunity to be able to talk a little bit about my work to all of you. Uh, it's a sort of bittersweet moment in the sense that, you know, everything that goes on in the world that literally is going on today in the world, and the world is sadly, in my opinion, edging closer and closer to a nuclear conflict and potentially to a third world war. And so at a time like this, it is uh, especially sad to, uh, well, maybe perhaps not sad, but I don't know if it's entirely appropriate to be talking about academic topics in a very objective and uh, uh, removed kind of fashion. It's especially difficult for me to do that, given that uh, I have personal background in Ukraine. Nevertheless, I will try to be scholarly and academic. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about my research agenda in this area of legacies uh, and uh, uh, legacies of violence specifically. And in effect, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to review this research agenda. How do we understand the research, the scholarship on legacies, what are the legacies of violence, what gets transmitted, how do things get transmitted. And this question, as hopefully I will be able to make clear in a moment, is not only of great relevance when we try to understand political behavior, and so why do people do certain things, why do people choose to fight, for example, in some contexts, and in other contexts they choose to participate in a peaceful resolution, resolve a conflict through voting, for example. But also, this research agenda has important policy implications insofar as uh, if we try to get out of the cycles of violence, and often these societies that have experienced conflict in the past go through vicious cycles of violence. The legacy of violence is such that the people who feel that they have been victimized maintain this victim identity over time and have grievances against the perpetrator. And this might have a tendency to persist, these vicious cycles of grievances and victimization. 
And one of the important policy questions that kind of arises out of this research agenda is how do we get out of these cycles, of these vicious cycles of victimhood? And uh, uh, how do we transition to uh, a peaceful uh, process uh, of post-conflict uh, reconciliation? Anyway, without further ado, let's uh, proceed. Uh, and uh, uh, the general set of questions that I'm going to be uh, going to be addressing today is going to be what are the long-term repercussions of violence. So once we have had a conflict in a particular society, let's say that it's a civil war, or it's an interstate conflict, or it's a different type of violence, where, for example, a population had been deported or displaced forcibly. What are the repercussions of that? And how do these legacies of violence, once we figure out what are they, we will ask ourselves how do they persist, how long they persist for, and also how they change. So this will not come as a surprise uh, to us today, given the events of the past several years. Uh, we are a pretty violent bunch, human beings. So here on this graph you're looking at the number of deaths on the y-axis per 100,000 people over time, going to 1,400, going all the way to the present. And you can see from this that the number of deaths has been more or less the same, has been more or less constant, despite the fact that we have had these changes in military technology, most notably, of course, in the 20th century with the First and the Second World Wars, the level of violence has remained largely the same throughout human history with the exception, of course, of the recent dip. We can see it right here at the very end of the graph, starting in the 1990s, we have had a reduction in the number of casualties. In fact, if we account for the events of the past couple of years, not only the war in Ukraine, but also the war in Syria, the war in Yemen, and we add to that the war in Ukraine, we will see that actually this trend line has come back to its average levels, that actually, despite this dip since the 1990s, over the past few years, we have gone back up to what historically have been pretty high levels of violence. Here is another way to look at deaths in state-based conflicts. So this, these are conflicts where the state is at least one party to the conflict. And so we're looking at a particular type of conflict here. And you can see that, yes, uh, the deaths from these kinds of conflicts have decreased uh, in recent years. But of course, now they're trending up as a result of the uh, ongoing war in Ukraine. Here is another uh, way to look at these data. Here on the slide we're looking at the number of active state-based conflicts. And you can see, for example, th uh, that in general over the course of the 20th century, this is since 1946, as the number of interstate conflicts have declined, the number of civil wars has been on the rise since the second half of the 20th century. And in the recent decades, we have seen quite a large number of wars that have a foreign intervention. So they look like interstate wars, but in fact, they have a civil war component. The war in Ukraine is exactly a war like that, right? Where we have, in principle, it's a war between Russia and Ukraine, now Russia and the West increasingly. But also there is some element of civil war dynamics to it as well. These types of conflicts over the past two decades are becoming more and more com common. And so the natural question that, of course, should arise is why should we care what legacy violence leaves? So we know that there is a lot of violence, that there has always been a lot of violence, sadly, in human society. But why should we care about the legacy of violence? And I would suggest to you that it's important to think about this question when we try to understand human behavior. Why do humans behave in a certain way? Why do people vote for a particular political party? Why do people volunteer to fight for a particular side in a given conflict? Why do people donate money to certain political, social and economic causes? So at the root of trying to understand the legacies of violence is an attempt to try and understand the nature of human behavior. Now, most of you in this room are students and you will know, of course, that the standard view in the social science is the dominant view is that change in human behavior is brought about by changing material and institutional incentives. So the idea is that if 
benefits that are paid out to the people, to the citizenry, are increased, for example, then the citizenry is going to act in a particular way. If pay pensions are increased or decreased, if taxes go up and down, people are going to react to changes in material incentives. Likewise, the idea is that if there is institutional reform, the voting system is reformed in a particular way, there is redistricting, or the uh, education system is reformed. Immediately after this reform, we're going to see changes in human behavior that result from changes in material incentives and changes in institutional structure. The research agenda on long durée, on long duration legacies, suggests that there is another set of causes of human behavior which do not actually conform to the standard view of what motivates behavior. And this view suggests that humans, we, take certain positions and adopt certain behaviors not because uh, of the way material and institutional incentives are structured, but because there is culture. There is a cultural factor at play in motivating our behaviors and motivating our attitudes. And part of this culture is a set of persistent identities. Some of these identities are victim identities that are produced as a result of conflict. And I'm going to show you some evidence today that victim identities are important an important component of culture that explains behavior. But there are all, also other types of political identities, let's say national identities or ethnic identities or racial identities that motivate behaviors and attitudes. And I'm going to argue today that these types of uh, identities are not subject to change, are not subject to manipulation, to, to manipulation in material and institutional incentives, that these types of identities persist and do not change as readily as uh, one would think things would change if financial and institutional incentives are altered. So, this is kind of abstract. Let's consider some examples of what I mean by these political identities. What are the types of political identities that persist over time? So here are some examples of long-term legacies. So one of the first papers in this tradition from about 10 years ago is a paper by German scholars, uh, economists, and economic historians, Voigtlander and Vought, who basically have noted that there is this surprising persistence in the level of anti-Semitism, so anti-Jewish attitudes in Germany. And what they did in their research is that they looked at uh, the level of anti-Jewish pogroms during the Black Death in the 14th century, and then they looked at uh, anti-Semitic pogroms, anti-Semitic attacks against Jews in Nazi Germany in the 1920s and 30s. And what they found is that there is a high level of correlation between uh, uh, localities that where Jews were attacked during the Black Death in the 14th century and places where there were anti-Semitic pogroms in the 1920s and 30s. And so they hypothesized persistence over a 600 year period and they basically said certain communities have certain cultural identities, have certain cultural values. These were expressed 600 years ago and they still continue to be expressed in the 1920s and 1930s. Now, their paper, it's one of the early papers in this tradition that talks about the importance of long-term legacies. Their paper is a little bit weak on the mechanism by which this persistence occurs. Why are these attitudes created in the first place? What explains the creation of these anti-Semitic attitudes and their persistence? The paper is quite weak on that. The paper is strong on showing a correlation between something that happened 600 years ago and something that happened in the 1920s. It's a little bit weak on mechanisms, but generally the hypothesized mechanism has to do with openness. So what they argue is that towns which were closed, where there were very few people arriving from the outside, very few people were being integrated into these communities, these are towns where anti-Semitism persisted into the present, and ones that were open to outside influences were ones where the anti-Semitic attitudes had dissipated and this legacy effect, this persistence effect, was broken. Another early paper, also from about 10 years ago, studies the legacy of slave, slavery in Africa. And what the authors of that paper, Nathan Nunn and Leonard Wonchikon, so uh, an economist and a political scientist, find is that places that suffered more from slave trade activities in Africa, and these are the places that on, this, on these maps here behind me you can see are highlighted in darker colors. So those places, they said, today have, high, have lower levels 
of interpersonal and institutional trust. Right? And so the argument basically that they make is that the areas that suffered from slaver raids historically, 400 years ago, let's say, are today, have today low levels of trust. And the mechanism that they hypothesize to have created this effect uh, has to do with the activity of slave ra raiders. So the idea was that you couldn't trust people who come from the outside into your community because there was a possibility that they were actually there to enslave you, to basically kidnap you and take you away. And a culture of distrust was created in these communities as a result. And that culture was passed down uh, through stories, largely. So rules of thumb, stories that grandparents told to their grandchildren when you leave the house and there is a stranger, do not talk to them. Do not trust the stranger, this kind of classical story of, you know, do not get into a stranger's car. That's the sort of equivalent, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, this, in this kind of case. Now, here is an example from my own work, and this uh, is from a book that I'm working on called Contested Nationhood, which is about Ukraine and political identities in Ukraine. I had begun this work way before the current war. Uh, I've been working on this project now for almost 10 years. And this project has to do with the influence of different empires uh, on Ukraine. And the question that I ask in this project is, Ukrainians, Ukrainian communities that were part of the Austria-Hungarian Empire historically, so these are located west uh, of this. Uh, this is here we're looking at western Ukraine on this map. This black dotted line is the former imperial border between Austria-Hungarian and Russian empires. That border was in place between 1770s and 1918, right? So uh, for about 150 years. And then in 1918, the border disappeared. And of course, then for a long time, we had this is, this is Ukraine. So all of these territories found themselves in Ukraine. And what I do in this project is that I compare communities located immediately to either side of this former imperial border. And I ask how different are these communities from one another today? They're very similar on all dimensions, with the exception of the fact that historically, the ones in yellow were in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and then the ones in kind of reddish, purplish colors were in the Russian Empire. And so the question I ask, what are the differences? Are there differences in political identities that are due to uh, uh, the different imperial presences? And what I find is that uh, those Ukrainians who reside in uh, uh, the former Austro-Hungarian communities, so west of the line, are considerably less positively predisposed towards Russia and there are also some uh, results on voting. These are very large effects, so difference of about uh, 40 percentage points, 20 to 40 percentage points, depending on what question we, questions we ask, having to do with attitudes towards Russia and attitudes towards the West. I have just completed the latest round of these surveys in Ukraine. I had field work going on during this conflict. And the latest data had come in, and the most surprising finding, completely unexpected to me, is that these differences still persist. You would expect that Russia's invasion of Ukraine would erase any cultural identity differences created by these empires that hadn't been there for the last hundred years. And yet, despite the conflict, the cultural differences persist in the present. And that speaks to the enormous staying power of these political identities, what I call uh, in my work core identities. And so the hypothesized mechanism here is survival of core identities through family, community, and through co-optation of local institutions by local elites in these settlements. And we're going to be talking about each of these mechanisms in turn with some illustrations from my work and also work by others. So this was a general introduction about the importance of long durée political identities and a taste for that literature, what that literature argues. And now we're going to talk more specifically about legacies of violence. So the questions that we will be addressing in the remainder of the talk are what are the legacies of violence? How long do they persist for? What are the mechanisms by which they persist and change? And so, very early on in this research agenda, going back now about 20 years ago, 
uh, there was a series of studies done by economists, often in the context of conf conflicts in Africa, where uh, these scholars have found that in the aftermath of conflict, we have higher levels of political mobilization in communities affected by violence. So people who have been affected by violence, who had found themselves fighting, who had been exposed to violence, kidnapped, tortured, in the aftermath of conflict, when peace comes, the research suggests that they become more politically active. They start turning out in elections more. Uh, they uh, uh, participate in community life, in community local community institutional life more. And psychologists have termed this post-traumatic growth. So psychologists have basically said what happens in the aftermath of conflict is that victims grow to overcome the trauma that they had experienced. They grow. They become more engaged. They participate more. And they work towards restoring, building their communities in this fashion. Uh, what we have learned since is that post-traumatic growth happens via a particular type of mechanism. So post-traumatic growth happens specifically through the strengthening of in-group bonds. So it is not the case that victims and victims' descendants engage in any type of political activity, that they engage in any type of institutions. But it is rather the case that they engage more in communal institutions, institutions that represent their own group. So yes, victims and victims' descendants become more active politically, but they become more active in a very particular way by engaging more with the in-group and rejecting more the out-group. The out-group is the group that is associated with the perpetrator, the original perpetrator of the violence. You should be able to see now how this leads to a vicious cycle. If in the aftermath of conflict, the in-group identity is strengthened and you reject the out-group, then that creates preconditions for another cycle of conflict. Enmity between the two groups, the victims and the perpetrators, heightens as a result of conflict. And in principle, what results from this, logically, is a continuing cycle of violence, where the role of victims and perpetrators might be reversed, and then we enter once again into this spiral. Furthermore, uh, subsequent research to, this, to, this, to these earlier studies demonstrated that trust in institutions goes down in communities of victims uh, if the institutions are not controlled by the in-group. So if the institutions represent the out-group, the perpetrator, so let's say that we're a particular ethnic group that had been targeted in the civil war, the civil war ends, the national institutions are controlled by another group, a different ethnic group from us. We're not going to trust these national institutions. We're going to reject them because they do not represent our group, the group of victims. So in short, what subsequent research had shown is that bonds between victims strengthen in the aftermath of conflict and those between victims and other groups in society, especially victims and perpetrators, those bonds actually weaken. And much of what I have to say uh, in the remainder of time that I'm going to distract you uh, with this is, uh, uh, is contained in this basic argument. So the logic of the argument is that exposure to violence changes victims' self-perception. They start thinking of themselves in a slightly different way from the way they originally thought about themselves when they were going into a conflict. Their identity, ethnic, racial, religious identity, depending on what the conflict was fought over. So the identity that was at the root of the conflict becomes more important to victims in the af aftermath of conflict. And their core identity as a result is strengthened. And then there's going to be a whole set of attitudes and behaviors that stem from these core identities. So if ethnicity becomes more important to us as a category in the aftermath of conflict, then the way we're going to be voting, the way we're going to be engaging in economic life, the friends that we're going to have, the networks that we will want to participate in will be different as a result of exposure to conflict. The legacy argument then comes in and says that once the first generation of victims acquires a different core identity, their core identity changes. 
these differences are going to be transmitted over time to subsequent generations within families and communities. And I'm going to show you some evidence to demonstrate how that is the case. As a result of this, of these changes in core identities in the aftermath of conflict, victims are going to develop closer bonds with other victims. So the relevant group for them is going to become the in-group, is going to become a group of victims. And the attachment to the in-group is going to be tightened. As a result, the bonds with the out-group, all out-groups, but especially the out-group representing the perpetrator, is going to weaken. And transmission is going to be transmission of these core identities, these changed core identities in the aftermath of violence, is going to be reinforced by communities, local elites, and sometimes institutions, and we'll talk about the role of institutions in this process later on. Now, of course, with time, persistence is going to weaken. These people are going to live in their communities. Let's say we enter into the third or the fourth generation. Let's say that the conflict doesn't reestablish itself. This victimhood identity is going to weaken over time. And presumably, eventually, after some time, it is going to, be dis to disappear. How long it takes for a victim identity to dissipate in the community that had been affected by violence is an open question on this research agenda. We simply don't know. It depends very much on the level of initial violence that communities had been exposed to. And also, if these victim communities fall apart, because the networks between these individuals who are members of these communities are broken, then presumably these core identities will take, uh, uh, will be able to persist for a much uh, lesser period of time as a result of the dissolution of networks. Okay, so uh, now I'm going to present you some empirical results about, I've talked a lot about these theoretical arguments and how, what the logic of the argument is, and now I'm going to present you with some empirical findings from my, from my work speaking to the different dimensions of this theoretical argument. So first, I've claimed that there is this intergenerational persistence of victim identities from the original victims to their descendants, second, third generation. So let me demonstrate that now uh, in the context of a conflict, uh, of uh, a particular empirical situation, which is deportation of Crimean Tatars from the Crimean Peninsula by Soviet authorities to Central Asia, uh, primarily to Uzbekistan, in 1944. So uh, Joseph Stalin, uh, the General Secretary of the uh, Soviet Union, uh, during the Second World War decided after the war that the Crimean Tatars had been collaborating with Nazi Germany in Crimea, uh, trying to undermine the interests of the Soviet state. And as a punishment to this community, he had, he had decided that the entire community of Crimean Tatars, all of them, must be deported from Crimea to Central Asia. And that decision affected not only every, literally every Crimean Tatar in Crimea, irrespective of their position. So for example, there were Crimean Tatars who were party members, secretaries of district level communist party cells. All of these people were equally affected. Everyone who was an ethnic Crimean Tatar was subject to deportation. In addition to that, the Soviet state removed soldiers from the Red Army who were still fighting in the war, including officers who were Crimean Tatars and deported them as well. So this deportation decision was complete. It affected the entire community with absolutely no exception. So 190,000 Crimean Tatars were deported to Central Asia. Because of the conditions of deportation, so the deportation process itself took about three months. People were transported in freight trains because there was not enough passenger trains and they were not, passenger trains were not uh, used for this. Uh, deportation, and also because of the terrible conditions uh, in Central Asia where there was no accommodation provided to, for these people. No camps were built, there was no housing for them, they effectively lived off the land and they were not able to bring much by way of belongings. As a result of the conditions of this deportation, about 20% of the deportees, 20% of Crimean Tatars, uh, this is a conservative estimate by the state, Crimean Tatar community that claims that the figure is closer to 40% of everyone who was deported. So somewhere between 20 and 40% of this community died in the first six months following the deportation. And this is going to be the empirical fact that we're going to leverage in the study. We're basically going to ask, what is the effect of death of family members 
on individuals who survived. That's how we're going to be studying the legacy of violence in this community. And we're going to be looking at the effects of deaths in the first generation on the children of the first generation and the grandchildren. And so to answer this question, uh, uh, myself and the colleague Noam Lupu, who is at Vanderbilt University, we conducted the study of first, second, and third generations within families, within Crimean Tatar families, where we interviewed so at least one surviving grandparent. It means that those families where all the grandparents were lost, they are not part of our sample, because nobody was alive from the first generation. So at least one grandparent must have survived. Others could have died. Then we interviewed their children, and then we interviewed their grandchildren, so three generations. About, so exactly 300 families, so we had 300 grandparents in the sample, and in total there were 2,000 respondents. And the uh, results, the effects of death in the first generation on the attitudes of grandchildren. These grandchildren had been born uh, after 1980, so they themselves obviously had not experienced the deportation. Deportation was in the 1940s. The grandchildren were born in the 1980s. Many of them never lived in the Soviet Union. And so the persistence we're looking at here is from grandparents who experienced the violence in some way to their grandchildren. And this is the effect of additional deaths. So what does one additional death what, what is the effect of that on a grandchild within these families that were affected? And what we find is that in families that experience death as a result of deportation, the grandchildren are much more likely to feel a strong sense of attachment to the uh, in-group. So they are much more likely to say that it's very important to them that they are Crimean Tatars. They have a very strong sense of Crimean Tatar identity, stronger than an individual of the same age whose grandparents didn't die in deportation who survives, that these grandchildren from affected families feel much more like victims. The effects are here in standard deviation, so they're a bit difficult to interpret in substantive sense, but it's a positive effect and it's quite substantial in size. And these people from affected families, these grandchildren, are much more likely to feel threatened. They feel unsafe today. They themselves never experienced violence in their lives. They were born well after violence had taken place, and yet they today feel threatened. If you consider these findings, just these three results, higher perception of victimhood, higher sense of in-group attachment, and higher perception of threat, you can imagine that these are going to have major consequences for how these people are going to engage with the society at large. The kinds of jobs they're going to be applying for, the kinds of companies that they will consider applying to. That is to say, they are much more likely to be applying jobs for jobs in companies that are controlled by Crimean Tatars, for jobs in their own community where they feel safe than going outside of their community. They are much more likely to be voting for ethnic parties insofar as these parties are present and open to them. And you can imagine that their feeling towards the hatred of the perpetrator, in this case the perpetrator are the successors to the Soviets, so the Russians, their feelings towards the perpetrator are going to be heightened as a result of their family experience. You know, and here we're looking at some of these political behaviors. So uh, grandchildren from victimized families have high levels of support for Crimean Tatar leaders. They have lower support for Russia's annexation of Crimea. So again, this is against the baseline of other Crimean Tatars of the same age. They're much less likely to vote for pro-Russian political parties. Interestingly, they are less likely to turn out to vote. However, they are much more likely to say that they are willing to participate in protests. So they are too scared to vote. Because here, the this is, this survey was conducted after Russia annexed Crimea. So these people were too scared to go and vote. But actually, they wanted to go and protest. So in principle, there is this latent protest potential in this community. And I've been talking to you about core identities, persistence of core identities. So what among these victims, among the victims of violence, what are the components of the core identity? It is attachment to the in-group, a sense of victimhood, and a feeling of being under threat. And here on this graph, we're looking at correlation in these expressed feelings, in-group attachment, victimhood, and threat perception. Here, this is correlation between grandparents and their children, so first and second generation, 
then here we're looking at the level of correlation in, the, in these sentiments between second and third generation, so parents and grandchildren. And then here is the correlation between grandparents and grandchildren, so the third and the third generation. And you can see that there is a weakening of correlations over time. They get closer to zero as we move across generations. But the level of correlation between grandparents and grandchildren is still very high, at somewhere between 30 and 40 percent. So this effect, in this instance, we can observe it persist for close to 100 years. And there is no evidence in this community, for example, suggesting that this effect is about to disappear. So we should expect persistence into the fourth generation and possibly even a little bit into the fifth. And then eventually, by the time it gets to the fifth generation of people in these victimized families, the effects might disappear. Okay, so how do victim identities get transmitted over time? So let's talk a little bit about the mechanisms. What is there any evidence to tell us how these identities persist? Literature in psychology and evolutionary biology about value transmission in general teaches us about three main transmission mechanisms. One is vertical transmission from parents to children, and this is something that I just demonstrated in the study of Crimean Tatars. The second one is horizontal or community level transmission from peer to peer. So if you spend time with your friends of the same age as you in school, at university, at home, they're going to affect you. Their cultural attitudes and their beliefs are going to be affecting you. That's a type of another type of transmission. And then there is so-called oblique transmission, which is from community elites to others. And what that means is that there are going to be certain people in the community whom you're going to have a great deal of respect for. So they might be your teacher in school, they might be the uh, priest, the mullah in your community. Uh, they might be a hero, so it might be somebody who you really hold up as an example. You'd like to be like that person at the time that you go to school. These individuals in their expressed behavior, in their expressed attitudes, are also going to affect you because you want to be, in effect, like them. And then there is also institutional transmission, which takes place through school socialization. So when we go to school, the state curriculum is going to teach you certain things about the history of your community and the history of your country. And that's another way to try and socialize people. What I find in the context of Soviet Ukraine, for example, is that school socialization largely failed. So the Soviet Union wanted to teach Ukrainians that they are a particular way, not just Ukrainians, but every Soviet subject. And the state had largely failed because these institutions, schools were co-opted by local elites. Teachers have to come from somewhere. And unless you bring them from the outside, so you train all the teachers in Moscow, and then you send them out into these villages, the teachers are going to come from the region. They're going to come from local communities. Well, these individuals, these local community elites, are going to disagree with the school curriculum. And they're going to work to undermine it. So just because the textbook says something doesn't mean that that's actually what is going to be taught in schools. And that's, for example, what was the case in some regions of Ukraine, but it happens everywhere. Okay, uh, I don't have a lot of time left and I, I don't want to bore you to death. And so I'm going to uh, talk about two other studies, but perhaps in a little bit less detail. So here we're going to talk a little bit about the role of communities in the transmission of political attitudes. So we know that parents matter in transmission of political identities, victim identities. Well, what about communities? I made this theoretical argument, so how can we test that? And so the empirical situation that we're going to be looking at here is going to be deportation, once again, sadly, also in the aftermath of the Second World War, deportation of ethnic Poles who lived in what today is Western Ukraine and uh, Western Belarus. And they were deported, they were moved forcibly after the end of the Second World War from these Soviet borderlands to the territory that today is Western Poland, that before the Second World War was Eastern Prussia. So what happened at the end of the Second World War is that Germany lost some territory to Poland, and Poland lost, lost territory to the Soviet Union. So in yellow we have the pre-war, pre-Second World War Polish borders. In blue is the outline of Poland the way it is today, the way these borders were created uh, after the Second World War. And to create this new Polish state, the Soviet Union relocated ethnic Poles uh, from uh, Ukraine and Belarus to this territory here. 
in uh, what today is Western Poland. And during this deportation process, what was so interesting is that some villages, some communities were able to stay together, so they were deported as a group, where basically an entire village would pick up, they would load onto the same train, they would bring their priests, they would bring their teachers, they would bring their uh, icons, the uh, um, religious uh, uh, symbols, from their communities, and then they would come to Western Poland and they would just occupy a village and they would settle as an entire community. Others, however, found themselves broken up. So other villages were broken up in the deportation process. And even though all of these people wanted to live with others like them, as a result of the uh, process, or the way the process of deportation worked, so specifically the availability of trains and the timing of trains, so sometimes the train would arrive at the station, there would be a village of people waiting there for the train, everybody would load onto the same train, there was enough space. At other times, the train would arrive, there was only one carriage available. And only some people would then get on, and they would in effect become stranded. And then in addition to that, when they would arrive in their villages in Western Poland, they would walk into a village, and they would find that some of the houses had already been taken. Because at the same time as these Poles were moving from Western Ukraine into Western Poland, other Poles were moving from Central and Eastern Poland into the same settlements in Western Poland. And so as a result, some of these houses, many of these houses might have been occupied. And so de facto what happened is that some communities moved wholesale as a community from Western Ukraine, other communities were broken up. And what we do in this study is that we measure the differences in political attitudes and behaviors today between Polish villages that moved as a whole community from Western Ukraine and those that were broken up in the process of deportation. And the comparison of these two sets of communities allows us to measure the effect of community, the role of community persistence in the transmission of political identities. Now, the Poles from the Soviet borderlands, from Western Ukraine and Belarus, had a very particular set of political identities uh, before the deportation. Uh, they were more religious, more patriotic and nationalist, and they had a longer experience with democracy as a result of having been living in the Austria-Hungarian Empire uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And so what we find is that, uh, uh, so the data comes from about 600 people that were interviewed in 60 majority and minority villages. And here on this graph, we report the effect for being in the majority community relative to the baseline of ending up in the minority. And what we find is that people in majority communities are today more religious, more patriotic, more likely to turn out to vote. Now, they don't vote any differently. They don't, want for dif they don't vote for different political parties from those who are in minority communities, but in terms of their cultural attitudes, in terms of their core identity on culture, they're quite different along the dimensions along which we would expect them to be different. So this study suggests that community bonds matter for transmission of political identities, for transmission of core identities. Uh, here is another study that uh, uh, I'm slowly coming to an end. This is the last empirical uh, study that I'm going to present to you. This tests the role of elites in the process of transmission of political identities, and I'm actually going to be presenting this project in the political science seminar on the 26th of October, for those of you who are NYU Abu Dhabi affiliates, with a lot more detail about research strategy, causal inference, and all of these fascinating things. And so here we're going to be looking at the role, what role do elites play in the formation and transmission of political identities? And we're going to look here uh, in the context of Nazi repression of Roman Catholic priests. So this is in Nazi Germany during Nazi rule, so starting from 1933 until the end of the Second World War in 1945. And so what happened, <clears throat> and this is in the context of Bavaria, so what you have on this map is Bavaria, and these different names are the names of the different dioceses, so the names of the different bishoprics within the region of Bavaria in southern Germany. And the black dots on this map are places where Catholic priests had been repressed. So in total, there were about 8,000 priests, and over 4,000 of them had been repressed by the Nazi state. The level of repression varied, so some people were just, the police would come and would say, you should, stop talk, you should stop talking about politics in church, this is not a religious matter. Others ended up in the concentration camp, there was a, a Catholic priest barrack in the Dachau camp, and so some of these individuals actually died. Others were not allowed to work as priests, so they were forcibly retired, or they were forcibly relocated. Why did the state, why did the Nazi state repress Catholic priests? The reason this repression occurred is because both 
the Nazi state and the Catholic Church wanted to control the hearts and minds of Germans. Both had universalist ideology. Both wanted to control every aspect of human life in their territory. And the value systems of the Catholic Church and the Nazi state clashed. The Catholic Church was universalist in its approach. Everybody who is a Catholic will be saved if they're a good Catholic. There is no distinction based on race or ethnicity. The only distinction that matters is, are you religious or are you not religious? And of course, as you know, the Nazi state was built on the idea of race, the superiority of German race, which clashed with the Catholic idea of the only marker being important for social and political life being religiosity. And so these two ideological systems could not cohabit because they wanted to control the hearts and minds of these individuals. And as a result, the Nazi state repressed uh, about 4,000 individuals, 4,000 priests. Priests, as you know, from your own lives, your own communities, are very powerful local leaders. In fact, in the countryside, they're of extreme importance. And so uh, activist priests were more likely to be repressed. So why should priest repression matter? What is the effect that it had? The idea is that when community faces political repression, its value system comes under threat. And repression of a community leader signals that the threat is real, that the threat is being implemented in this instance by the state. And in response to this repression, community members double down on their values, in-group identity is strengthened, and there is, as a result, a, core, a change in the core identity. And as I had argued earlier, we expect these changes in core identities to persist over time. And so here I present the first piece of evidence that priest repression had created an effect in these communities, that it created stronger in-group dynamics. And so here we're looking at the level of mass attendance, how many people came to church on Sundays to attend religious services in communities where priests were repressed by comparison to those where there was no repression. And these data come from 1970, 1980, 1990, 2010. So this is from 1970, 1980. 1990, 2010. So you see that by 2010, the effect disappears. So mass attendance on Sundays was higher, these levels of attendance in church services was higher in communities where priests had been repressed. And this was already starting in the 1970s. So these priests had long died, they were not around, and yet they left some kind of effect. There was this shift in core identity that was created. This shift in core identity has political repercussions in these communities, specifically in the way that they vote. And here we're looking at the level of support for Christian Democrats, for the Christian Democratic Party in Germany, which is the party most closely affiliated with the Catholic Church. And what we find is that in the first post-war elections, uh, communities where priests had been repressed were more likely to support Christian Democrats by somewhere between two and three and a half percentage points. And these legacy effects, these differences in voting behavior, persist all the way to the present. So here the data goes up to 2009, but they weaken over time. We start at the level of about three and a half percentage points. So those places where priests have been repressed are more likely to support Christian Democrats in post-war elections by about three and a half percentage points, which by the standards of this literature on voting is a very large effect. And this effect weakens to about one and a half percentage points by 2009, and presumably in another 20, 30, 40 years, the effect is going to disappear. So there's a waning of the effect. So that's all I have to say by way of empirical examples of the mechanisms of transmission. And I'm just going to say a couple of very brief words about what we know thus far and where this research agenda is going in case some of you are interested in the future of these questions. So one of the problems in the way we study transmission has to do with the problem of silence. And this might be familiar to some of you, to those who come from contexts where there has been victimization and trauma. Often, parents, grandparents who had experienced violence do not actually talk about it. And the question is, how do we study transmission of identities and values if those who are supposed to be transmitting them don't actually talk about their experience? of victimization. And there is some evidence from biology and the study of genetics that there is another, an alternative mechanism of transmission that operates at the level of epigenetics. 
I'm not going to go, I'm not an expert on epigenetics, obviously, I'm a political scientist, so I'm not going to go and talk about that in detail. Some of you might have attended the talk earlier this year, I think in February or March, where we had a guest here who is a uh, geneticist talking about epigenetic changes among Syrian refugees uh, in Jordanian camps, who actually showed that uh, children's epigenetics change, uh, children's epigenetics who are descendants of mothers who had experienced stress of having been repressed, victimized during the Syrian civil war, the children's epigenetics are very similar to the epigenetics of mothers. So maybe there is a biological channel for transmission of trauma, and of course the epigenome, as you know, is not about the DNA, that's about genetics. Epigenome is about proteins that regulate the expression of genes. And it seems that it's the proteins that regulate the expression of genes, for example, stress genes, that actually alter. And so this is one promising direction in which this research agenda is going to go. And there is already some work in this, uh, also in the context of Rwanda. And I think that the biologist who studies uh, the epigenetic uh, transmission mechanisms in the context of the Rwandan genocide might be visiting NYU Abu Dhabi, I believe, in the spring. And so perhaps you will get to meet him at uh, one of these institute talks. Okay, so uh, by way of a summation, what do we know thus far? We know, I hope that I've convinced you that we know, that violence leaves a legacy by strengthening in-group identities, reducing trust in outsiders, and reducing trust in institutions that exist outside of the community. That a change in core identities, transmission of these victim identities in the aftermath of violence, is something that is done by families and communities, and what I didn't talk about today, and that's the subject of the book that Paula very kindly mentioned, Children of Violence, is the question of under what conditions do legacies of violence not become transmitted? And there are some conditions there that we will be talking about that. Uh, I can happy to talk about that in the Q&A, but also we discussed that in the book manuscript itself. So the next steps in this research agenda is to study the effects of different types of violence in different types of conflicts. Here today I talked a lot about deportations and a little bit about uh, civil war. Uh, the study of alternative transmission mechanisms, for example, the biological epigenetic mechanism. And the most important question from a policy perspective is how to alleviate these vicious cycles that we talked about at the beginning of the talk, persistence of this sense of victimhood that then potentially results in generating more conflict. So with that, that is all that uh, I think I'd like to say for now. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.